This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here from A Blog to Watch. Today I'm doing a special podcast with Eddie from Wrist Aficionado. Eddie, welcome. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Today we're going to talk about the Wrist Aficionado story, the stores, the watches, and of course the customers, the uh, people out there who you serve. I guess we should start off by saying that Wrist Aficionado began as an online retailer, but has transitioned into brick and mortar. So you are a very interesting and modern hybrid of the two. Most of the time you've had you know, companies that started as a brick and mortar retail space and went into the online sales segment. You did it different. Talk a little bit about the formation of Wrist Aficionado and your story. Of course, will do. Um, so the company started, uh, myself and my partner Vadim, we started the company back in uh, 2017. And in 2017, we started off basically as um, just wholesalers, you know, selling from um, a gray market dealer to good dealer. And in 2018, <clears throat> we got a pretty decent hold of social media and we started transitioning slowly but surely into the retail space. In 2017, we had an office, um, probably about 500 square feet or so, where we operated out of. And that lasted us for a good year and a half. And as social media took off, our retail following took off with it. And we slowly transitioned into the retail space in, it was the end of 19, beginning of 2020. And as soon as... Uh, in the coming months when we were supposed to open up our store, that's when COVID hit, and we shut down for a bit before we even opened. <clears throat> um, but thankfully after that, you know, with COVID came a big boom in the watch market. Um, so we kind of uh, accelerated our boom pretty quick, and the business grew pretty rapidly from 2020 up until now. I want to sort of point out the fact that there is a very interesting business story to be told about going from online to retail, not the other way around. What do you think were the primary forces or what you saw in the market that made you and the team say, you know what, we're doing a great job selling remotely, but we also want to have not just one, but multiple re retail spaces. I think from a business perspective, that's interesting. And it also tells um, a story of sort of rebirth and re rejuvenation in the industry where there was a point where people were saying, oh yeah, retail spaces, we're going to need a lot less of those. But I think I always knew that there's a lot of value to them. So tell me a little bit about why Wrist Aficionado wanted to move into retail and what that means for your entire experience and company. So what we found, uh, we limited ourselves to the amount of different brands that we would sell. You know, so, so we concentrated basically on five or six main brands, uh, the Rolexes, the APs, the Paddocks, the RMs. Um, and with that, we realized that when a client is spending, you know, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, or two hundred thousand dollars on a watch, um, just seeing it online wasn't enough for them anymore. And they, a lot of times, they wanted to come in and touch and try it on. Uh, so, and that was a big distinguishing feature for us. Uh, we realized that uh, having an office space to cater to clients that wanted to purchase these high-ticket items wasn't enough. And you know, we took on we realized that we were taking on a big expense with opening retail because nobody really did it in the market um, as a secondary watch dealer. Uh, you know, most people had offices or uh, they can have small spaces somewhere, but retail brought along its own, uh, it brought along its uh, own expenses. And for us, 
we realized that it was going to be a big undertaking. Uh, but I, we thought it was worth it. You know, we thought that we were still going to get that client that wanted to spend $100,000, uh, but they were comfortable enough spending it in a space where they can come in, try it on, uh, see it for themselves, and know that uh, the person that they're buying it from is going to be reputable and it's not going to be a fly-by-night. You know, we're an established location. You know, we try to open up in a pretty uh, affluent area in New York and just to bring credibility to the store and to the name. What did you learn after you started the retail, right? Because you had a plan, let's go into more retail. You said you had sort of a private office. Yes. But once you started in the sort of retail side of it, what did you learn? I mean, there must have been all kinds of realizations, surprises, maybe some validations. Talk a little bit about the first couple of weeks or months, um, some of the things that you and the team started to realize. I mean, the, the first thing that we learned is that uh, operating expenses and burn rate on a retail space were quite high. And it's not something we were used to. <laughs> it's like a startup realization. Exactly. So we were just burning through a lot of capital in the beginning, you know, between inventory and build out. And then with that became staffing. And as the company grew, you know, in New York, we have three floors right now in New York and, you know, multiple staff members for each position. And then an online team and a sales team and a back office and accounting team. Um, so with that, you know, before, before all this happened, it was just me and Vadim, um, you know, it was, and we had a receptionist. There's three of us in an office. And with retail came a lot of staff, a lot of responsibilities, um, and overhead was huge. Uh, but we realized that we still needed to bring that uh, to our clients. And it was, a different, it was a different model for us because, you know, when you're just an online seller, you're competing with thousands of online sellers. But bringing that credibility and bringing, you know, some sort of uh, validity and, you know, t- so that, that feeling of being able to touch and come into a store and walk in and sit down and talk to a sales associate you know, that brought a lot of credibility to us. And we realized that that was going to be the only way that we could have done it. We couldn't go back anymore. You know, we realized we couldn't go selling a $250,000 watch or a $300,000 watch and just selling it in an office space anymore. It just wasn't the clientele that we were attracting. I think that's very interesting. And it reminds me of, I guess you could say a common theme that I hear from retailers over the years. And that is that watches are really sold in person. You sort of have to fall in love with the product. And that's a chemical experience that happens when you touch, when you put it on your wrist, when you sample how you feel emotionally when you look at it sitting on your wrist. You can imagine these things online. You can see the watch on someone else's wrist. You can look at pictures on a blog to watch or through your website and you can guess. But it's not until you put it on your wrist that you know. Maybe you can't afford it, but you know you want it. Indeed. And that is Indeed. something that you simply can't re- replicate elsewhere. And I think there's been a lot of success in sort of having watch hangout spaces. Now, I know that you've been, you know, probably interested in watches for a a, a while now. You remember back in the day, it was sort of a jewelry store experience. Talk about how the retail experience has evolved from watches being sold alongside, you know, ostensibly women's jewelry to what we have today. What, What is it like buying a watch today compared to that? Um, so, so the retail experience in our store is pretty eclectic. We do cater, you know, probably 85% of our business is still watches, but a good chunk of our business has uh, shifted into jewelry, both men's jewelry and women's jewelry, uh, engagement rings, uh, necklaces. Uh, you know, we, we go through the whole gambit, whether it's, you know, large diamonds or stones or earrings, you know. So we realized that at some point, when we first started off our company, we were servicing 95% males. And we realized that we were shortchanging our industry because we weren't uh, servicing a good subset of the population. Uh, So with that, we transitioned where we have a lot more jewelry now. 
Uh, we even sell handbags. Now, uh, we went as far as to open up another store in next to my Miami location in the Satai that strictly does handbags and women's jewelry, uh, just because we realized there was a whole whole industry that we weren't tapping into. So with that, you know, we, the buying experience become it became much more extensive for us. You know, and the other issue with having these stores is now you have to have inventory because you can't have empty shelves. It's not like having an office space anymore. You know, we had the luxury of having no inventory when we had an office space. Uh, having stores now, this is going to be our third store that we're opening now. Uh, you have to have the stores filled with inventory. Uh, so that's basic, that's our biggest expense right now. So uh, having as much inventory as possible and as big a selection as possible, uh, so we can try to service uh, you know as many different um, categories of people as we can. Now you mentioned something very important there about inventory, and what a lot of people don't know when they shop online for watches is that the person who they're shopping from doesn't always have that watch in stock. Uh, it's one thing to have a picture. It's one thing to have a listing. It's nothing to have the watch. And there have been a lot of experiences that I've heard of where someone has purchased a watch at a price they thought was too good to be true to realize that, in fact, it is. And it really hinges upon the fact that who they bought it from doesn't have the watch and then somehow has to try and scramble to get it in a short amount of time at a price under that which they sold it, which they <laughs> frankly can't always do. Correct. And so you make it sound as though it's a big liability, but the reality is that unless you have the watches available to you, you know exactly the condition they're in and, and you know how much you got them for, it can't really be a good business partner to your clients, right? You're, it, you're it, never going to be able to deal fairly or honestly with them un until you have it. And then on their end, why would they want to deal with a middle agent? Don't they want to just deal with the person that owns the watch? Correct. And, and that gives them, again, the best experience. So I, I think it's important just to talk about all that, right? So, so for us, the way we structured our business model is that we want to have enough in store and in stock for somebody to try on either the exact model they want or something very similar. You know, because you're not going to have any di every dial out there. You're not going to have every bracelet out there. Uh, some people may want a 41 millimeter chronograph in a blue dial. You'll have it in a brown dial. But we wanted to have enough of a selection so somebody can try on something very similar and at least get a feel for it. So I'd say probably 80% of our business is of what we have in stock. And I'd say 20% of our business is somebody comes in, tries something on, they love it, but they want a slightly different dial or uh, they want maybe something a little bit bigger or they want something a little bit newer, a little bit older. Uh, and say 20% of our business is just sourcing products that we may not necessarily have in stock. But we're able to provide our clients with something close enough that they can, where they can see and touch it um, and get a good idea of what they're going to have on their wrist prior to purchase. So it kind of eliminates a lot of the risk for us because the clients have already seen something probably 90% of the way there. Uh, we're just kind of uh, closing the gap on that 10%. When the clients come in and they see the watches, are they surprised that you have it? Do they, do, are they impressed by the size of your inventory? Because I'm a fan of having retailers that have a very robust level of inventory of watches you know, that, that really run the gamut in terms of price and, and rarity. Do you find that it's, it's, it's easy to dazzle clients? They're like, check this out, check this out, check this out. Or do they actually want to see less products? Uh, I mean, for us, yeah. I mean, that was one of our biggest claim to fame is that when somebody comes in, they can find every Rolex on the market, right? They can find the majority of the APs that are out there or the modern APs that are out there. You know, we try to carry a, you know, a fairly extensive selection of Richard Mills. Uh, so we try to have a little bit of everything in stock. So for most clients, you know, you walk into your average RM boutique and the wait is going to be a year for a watch. Or you walk into your average Rolex boutique and they tell you the wait's going to be two years for a Daytona. Where, 
you can walk into any one of our stores and we'll probably have several models in stock. Um, so that's the biggest wow factor I think that we have currently is that no matter what you want to see or what you want to try on, uh, if your, uh, your regular store doesn't have it, the likelihood is that we will have a version of it in stock somewhere. So let's talk a little bit about the formation of the business. And, you know, you're talking about 2017, and I, I really think it was sort of the pandemic and what happened a little bit after, uh, after 2017 that probably pushed you into the direction that you are right now. There is a trendiness in watches as luxury items for people beyond the traditional watch consumer community, which happened over the last few years. You know, uh, watches in the media and on social media was a big part of it. But talk a little bit about what you saw over the last several years of how watches penetrated the mainstream and public attention in a way that probably surprised you. Because I think it's so important to talk about the market and why a company like Risti Aficionado even exists and exactly the role of these items in, in culture today. And, and again, please, I'd love to hear from your own personal perspective over the last five or six years, w- describe the luxury watch market. Uh, so for us, I think the brands had a big part of it um, as far as the push with their influencers and their athletes. You know, RM does an amazing job with all the athletes with the Nadals and the Bubba Watsons. You know, AP does a great job. You know, they have the Kevin Hart's and they have the LeBron's pushing their inventory. You have Rolex who has unlimited money for marketing spend. Paddock is just, you know, it's, uh, it's a staple in, you know, most, you know, big collect, uh, collectors watch collections. So, uh, um, Paddock's always going to be, uh, on the list of, uh, everyone's wish, uh, everyone's wish list. <clears throat> uh, but what's happened in, uh, from, I say from late 18 to 2022 is that you know, people started realizing that watches were an asset class. Um, a lot of that had to do with the influx uh, of liquidity in our economy. Uh, I think with all the money that was being pushed into the economy, people were spending a lot more, and they realized that watches were starting to appreciate. And then, you know, they saw big celebrities starting to put on watches, and all the athletes had them, and the Mark Wahlbergs and the DJ Khaleds. Uh, so, you know, once they started uh, incorporating them into their everyday, you know, Instagram posts and their YouTube videos and their movies. You know, it just became very mainstream. You know, and a day doesn't go by where a new celebrity is going to pick up a new watch and post it on his Instagram, uh, and they're going to have a little bit of flex with it, and then somebody else is going to see it, and they're going to call our store uh, inevitably and say, "I want the same one." You know, but you know, it, it's very rare that you can be a, a Khaled and walk into a boutique and just pick up, you know, any watch at random. You know, for most people, there's a wait list that goes on with that, and uh, some people don't want that wait list. They want immediate gratification, and I think that's where our industry was born of that need for immediate gratification where somebody doesn't want to wait two years for a Daytona or two years for a 5980. Um, they earned it, they, they worked for it, and they want it now. And I think that we kind of bridge that gap between immediate gratification um, and that, main street, uh, that mainstream um, that watch that everybody wants. How was what the watch people want decided? You know, there is a, again, I keep talking about trendiness, which means that there's certain watches that were more popular than others. Of course, there's brands that are much more popular than others. Rolex, Richard Mille, Audemars Piguet, a handful of others. From your perspective, what was responsible for creating which ones were popular? You said some celebrities wearing it. Was it that? Was it something else? Because you were there to serve a market that existed beyond you. You know, you are not creating the demand. You're not telling people, hey, this particular Richard Mille is amazing. Some other forces are doing it. Who, who, is, who are those forces? And, 
you know, has that changed over time at all? Uh, I think it's uh, multifaceted, right? I think the celebrities and the influencers, they're huge. Because when, when you see the Wahlbergs uh, wearing a new piece, in a, you know, it's, an, it's an inevitable that somebody else is going to want that same piece. Uh, when, you see Koa, when you see the uh, LeBrons walking in uh, and they have a new AP on uh, that's limited edition, you know, there's a good chunk of the population that's going to want that same exact AP. Um, and I, but I think a lot of the demand is also pushed by, uh, you know, what, what gray market dealers such as myself, you know, advertise and think is trending at the moment. You know, uh, we, we get a good amount of views uh, on our page. And I think the pieces that we push out there are the pieces that we feel uh, are in demand at the moment. Um, so there, there's a lot of uh, factors that go into it. You know, obviously it's the brands and their push. Uh, it's the celebrities. You know, a lot of them are being gifted. You know, you can uh, see the Jacobs and, you know, uh, the amount of celebrities that are wearing Jacobs right now. <clears throat> you know, the Jacob Bugattis became very popular. You have the Astronomias that became super popular because of the amount of celebrities that wore them. You know, Drake puts on a new RM or he puts on a new J- a Jacob and we get 10 phone calls the next day looking for that same piece. Uh, so there's a lot of things that go into it, but I think uh, the brands and the celebrities and the influencers are the main push. Uh, and then it's, you know, I think the gray market has a lot to do with it because, you know, we have the, a lot of the gray market dealers that have good social media influence and, you know, people see these and, you know, they see what's trending and they want the same thing. Do you think that there's going to be longevity to this, we'll call it process or this ecosystem? Because I personally find it fascinating, right? Like I study why people like the watches they do. I don't really care what watches people like, but, you know, from sort of an academic standpoint, I've always been very curious as to how the customer perceives things. And I've traveled the world and I've seen different watches appealing to different people for very different reasons. And this sort of social media popularized watch is a relatively uh, recent phenomenon. Indeed. It's, it's understandable, but it also you know, asks a lot of interesting questions as to what creates demand. And you mentioned there'll be a celebrity wearing a watch and right after people will call. Why do you think they're doing that? Why do they want that watch? Why do the why do people want it? Yeah, why do you think that the celebrity having it creates this immediate demand? Because here, let me explain some context here. It used to be that you would grow up wearing people, or sorry, you would grow up seeing people on screen wearing like the Rolex, and over time, you know, you would see it and slowly develop a demand such that when you're an adult and you have money, you suddenly find yourself wanting a Rolex yes. and you're not really sure why yeah. because of that subtle, you know, it's been ingrained and educated you. Now, it's like, I saw some dude I don't know wearing something, I gotta have it ASAP. Like, so different than the way at least Rolex thinks about it. Yeah, so, so for me, this is all social media. And it's the average consumer's desire to live vicariously at times through an athlete or an actor or a billionaire of some sorts or royalty. You know, if you see the crown prince wearing a new paddock and it's a beautiful piece and you say to yourself, you know, it's 200 grand, I can afford it. If he's wearing it, it must be special. Uh, There's no reason why I can't wear it also. And a lot of our consumers, a lot of our customers will do the same. Um, So they can almost live that life vicariously of that uh, celebrity or, or, yeah, so, so I think it's almost, and this is strictly social media for me. This is, you know, social media's influence on people wanting to live vicariously, you know, through others. But isn't it interesting that watches are a vector to do that? I mean, of course, it's not just watches, yeah. but I think for men, 
you know, when we look at the way that those people live and we see what they dress, especially for those that follow them on social media, you know, people aren't buying every single item. They're not no. buying the clothing. They're not necessarily buying the car or the or, or or the companion. But for some reason, the watch is like this easy to gravitate to totem of their lifestyle. So yeah. I totally agree with you. This is vicarious living, but that we focus on the watch fascinates me. I, I think that, you know, it's also the path of least resistance. You know, I think it's the easiest to attain, uh, even though it could be quite expensive. <laughs> Not price-wise. Yeah, well, <laughs> well you, it, it's hard to replicate the lifestyle with the jets and the vacations sometimes because uh, you don't have the time to do it. You know, it, it, you can't always go out and uh, buy, buy that new car because, you know, a lot of times they'll depreciate more than, you know, watches did in, 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 in past. Um, so I think the... At the, from the point that watches became an asset um, and when it became so prevalent on social media, uh, that combination uh, kind of changed the, uh, the thinking of most people to where they started picking up these pieces that they never would have picked up before. A lot of people wouldn't have spent 300000 on a watch, uh, because, but because they realized it was an asset class. And you know, they've seen watches go from 100000 to 300000 in two years. They thought to themselves, listen, if it's an investment anyway, um, and I can wear it, enjoy it, uh, and still have the benefits of, you know, possibly making a couple of dollars on it. Why not? You know, so I think it was a very easy transition for them to make. Let me suggest another way of thinking about it. And you know how a lot of studies have said that, you know, today's generation of consumers values experiences over things. You're, you're familiar with that, right? Yeah. So I think the watch is actually both a thing and an experience. Because when you see the watch on those people's wrists and you see their lifestyle, that becomes an experience. And so buying the watch is a vector to living that experience. You now get to wear that watch, not just imagine their experience, but have your own such adventures wearing with it. Absolutely. Doing day-to-day -day things, traveling, going on a date, just hanging out with your friends with that watch becomes a very different experience than doing it without that watch. And I know that's weird maybe for some people that aren't into that, but if you're a watch person, I think you'll totally be familiar with that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I think listen, for most men, no matter what happens with the economy, whether it's up, down, sideways, and uh, whether prices go you know, up or down, I think all men at, will always come back to watches and cars. And it's innate. It's innate. Uh, no, no matter what happens, you could say right now, you know, a lot of guys go through a hard time with the economy and they say, I want to sell some stuff, but they'll always come back to it. You know, there's never a time where watches will just be obsolete and people just won't want to wear watches anymore. It just won't happen. It won't happen. There's, some, there's something interesting I learned over the years, and it has to do exactly with what you're talking about, people's propensity to buy. And what we found was this. The predominant logic was essentially that when there was economic hardships or hard times or, or recessions, people would stop spending on luxuries uh, like watches. But that's actually not what I found happens. What I found happens is that people maintain their taste, but the amount they spend shifts with their their income and their affordability, right? So mm -hmm. like you might have some great times and be spending restart meal money, but absent having that, you still have a desire to go out and buy some Seikos and Tissos, right? Yep. Like if that's all you can afford, you're still going to do it. Like you're going to find, as you said, the path of least resistance to getting that experience, but it, it, it becomes like an important thing. Like people don't drop it unless they absolutely have to. And that's like, it, who are all those guys that'll sell everything before their watch, right? Uh, of course, of course. This, uh, and I think the majority of people are like that. You know, the watches, and a lot of those watches have sentimental value, whether, you know, uh, they met their, their wives with it or a business meeting or they got their first bonus and they got their first paddock or, 
you know, they got a promotion and they got themselves a watch. They closed a big deal and they got themselves a watch. And that sentimental value for them is worth a lot more um, in the long run. So I think a lot of guys will liquidate other assets before they start liquidating their watches. It makes me think about all those times in television shows or movies, especially growing up, where there was this plot trope where somebody had like, they, you know, they hit rock bottom, they lost everything, but they still have their luxury watch and they use it, you know, for trade at a last ditch effort to get something they need. Hey, can I trade you for my watch? And I just remember this, this, you know, this trope happening again and again and again. It goes exactly what we're talking to that it's, you know, even though logically it might not have as much value, that emotional connection makes it sort of near and dear. Yeah. So here's the next question. Is it hard to do that with a whole collection? Because I think that a fear that some people have is, okay, I can see having this, this emotional interest in like half a dozen watches, but can I have it in 30? Do you find that there's people that still have this personal relationship with maybe dozens of watches? No, I think that's died out a little bit. I think people become attached to maybe, you know, call it half a dozen to a dozen of their favorite watches. Everything else, they realize that it just sits in the back of the safe and they don't wear it as much. So that's why people come in and out of watches, which is fine for my business because, you know, we take trades and we give new watches. So that's basically how we operate, you know, and I'm fine buying watches and we take watches on consignment all the time. And there's plenty of people that don't want their watches anymore. And they say, you know what, I haven't worn this one in two years. Maybe I can upgrade to something else. Or, you know, I have this $50,000 watch sitting in my safe, haven't worn it in a couple of years. Maybe I'll pick up another 50000 or maybe I can get a $100,000 watch. But they have credit lying there because of the asset class that it's become. Um, and, and that's really changed a lot of people's perspective on things. You know, I think people realize that they're, you know, if there's you know six watches sitting in their safe at fifty thousand a piece, it's three hundred thousand dollars that they can put towards either another watch or they can get some value out of it. They can sell it, you know, maybe put it into an investment of some sort if they wanted to. So, you know, the fact that it's changed into this asset class of sorts, you know, really changed people's perspective on these watches. I think there's an interesting element of psychology there, and I do agree that a lot of people have seen them that way. But I think more importantly is this desire for consumers to want to sample. Because the watch is an experience, and there are so, so many high-end watches out there, it's natural for people want to sample different experiences and, and just sort of see the variety which is out there. And so this mentality of watches as assets has lent itself very well to the trading of them so that multiple people can experience that watch ostensibly. Um, and I think that's one of the, sort of the highlights of treating them as things that have sort of, you know, value that, that is held or some type of stability in, in their, their desirability. Tell me a little bit about what you've seen of the psychology to want to sample. How, how long Two years? Like, how long do they want? You know, like, what's what's the relationship uh, lifespan of most of these uh, watches and, and their owners? So I couldn't agree more. I think that sampling is what really brought up brought up these um, these uh, these micro brands per se. You know, a lot of these smaller brands that didn't have these advertising dollars behind them before really did super well because people wanted to see what it was like to wear these F. P. Jorns, the Debethunes, the M. B. N. Fs, uh, the Grubel Forces. You know, these smaller brands where probably in 2016, maybe 17, they didn't do as great. Um, when there became more liquidity in the market and people had more money to spend, they were so eager to, to try on the Vacherones and, you know, these all, all these brands that they never had before. Because these are great quality brands that really are beautiful. And they, people didn't have to get stuck to just Rolexes and Paddocks for a certain amount of time. They can kind of come out of their comfort zone and try all these smaller brands that, you know, once they got a hold of them, you know, people became uh, avid collectors of them. You know, so F.P. Jordan, you can't even get now, right? Uh, MB&F's doing amazing. 
You know, so these these micro brands did super well just because people really did need to uh, try something out of their comfort zone and sample, as you said. You know, so I think it was great for the industry in a whole. I think Richard Mill did it particularly well, and they continue to do it well because you have the Richard Mill brand, which is co- consistent across whatever watch you have because it's a Richard Mill. And for the most part, there's sort of a consistent wearing experience. You have this tonneau style, which is barrel-shaped case. Yes, the shape you know changes, and some are bigger and smaller, but it's kind of the same thing. But what they varied is the colors and what you see in the dial. And what I think is going on, and I love your opinion, is that people say, I know what the Richard Mille brand and product wearing experience is like, but I don't always want to wear the same color. I don't always want to look at the same dial, and so I'll want to switch it up from time to time. And their entire brand strategy seems to have lent itself very well to people to want, you know, the same shoes, but again, in different styles and not to wear the same pair all the time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, listen, you can buy an older model ARM 11, but for that same ARM 11, you can pick up, you know, a dozen different straps. And every time you put on a new strap, you essentially have a new watch. You know, RM did it the best because I think they had that you know they were very uh, targeted in their uh, vision as far as their demographic, you know, and they concentrated on that one demographic. You know, they put out a set number of watches. They were super good at controlling supply and demand, um, and they didn't really uh, skew much from their design element. You know, they found what works. They found the target audience that it worked on, and, and that's all they really needed to concentrate on. And they created such scarcity in the market by not flooding it with pieces that everybody wanted at some point. And even though the prices were exorbitant at some point. Uh, you know, there's, they were trading at three or four X on some pieces, people still wanted them, you know, and, and that created such a buying frenzy for RM at some point that, you know, we could, really couldn't keep up. We really couldn't keep up. And that was a huge chunk of our business. RM was a huge chunk of it. What is your relationship like as a store, risk aficionado, with the brands themselves? I think, you know, people always wonder this, you know, is this retailer on good terms with the brand, right? There's authorized dealers and then other, other you know, retailers have these conspicuous messages on their website. We have no affiliation with a brand of any kind. Um, you know, I think it's actually an interesting question to ask that because people might say, okay, I buy a Rolex or a Richard Mille and an Audemars Piguet from you. If I need it sent back to the brand for some repair, is that even doable? Um, because you know, you are, in my understanding, a full-service operation. You sell Correct. the watch, and if somebody has a problem with the watch or needs it repaired, you guys need to handle that. Talk about you know, the, the, the client relationship that's outside of just buying and selling the watch. So for us, I mean, the brand relationships are, are fairly good for us. I mean, we do a good job of, I think people like myself and you know, Risk Aficionado, we, we advertise the brands just as much as they do themselves. So for us and for them, I think it's very symbiotic. Um, as far as the client uh, experience, you know, the watches that we purchase are all authenticated by us. You know, our watchmakers look at everything. Uh, we give our own warranty on the watches if the warranty, the manufacturer's warranty has expired. Uh, but most people can still just use the normal manufacturer warranty because they're transferable. You know, you could still buy a Rolex if it's still under warranty. You could take it internationally. Uh, you could still have it serviced wherever you need. Same thing goes with Paddock. Uh, same thing with RM. Uh, AP, you could still walk into Boudic as long as you have the warranty and it's under warranty. You can go ahead and service it. Uh, so 99.9% of the watches that we purchase and we resell uh, are still under some sort of a warranty, whether it's a manufacturer warranty. And if it's not, you know, we do provide our own one-year warranty on everything where our watchmakers will be responsible for it. Um, but warranties are all transferable. You know, we, we do a pretty good job. We don't step on anybody's toes as far as the brands. 
We never make any, uh, you know, we never, we don't insinuate that we're authorized dealers. We tell everybody that we're secondary market dealers. Uh, we're pretty, pretty transparent about things. You know, everybody knows that these watches have been pre-owned, um, and we're resellers of watches. And you know, and we try to stay in our lane. You know, we tr- we never try to, we, we don't try to advertise something that we're not. And so that's why I think the brand affiliation has always been good. You know, there's never been any issues from the first day we've gone into business. I think it's important to talk about that because. You have certain businesses, hopefully yours as well, where consumers, once they develop a relationship, they stick with you, not just because you have the inventory they want, but because of how they're treated. And part of how they're treated is if you offer a concierge-style service as well, which means I'll help you find things, I'll help you fix things, I'll help you this, I'll help you that. And that deeper part of the relationship beyond being you know, um, like a cashier, so to say, is, I think, an important part of it. You know, there's there's yourself. There's a few others on the team. Talk about what comes with the wrist aficionado relationship, uh, a little bit more so than again someone to to help you pay for the watch you want. Of course. So for us, it's not just about you know going out there finding a watch because people I think can do that anywhere, right? Um, that's not what what makes us special. I think that concierge service that you mentioned is really what we try to differentiate ourselves as. Um, you know, there's been plenty of times where we've taken a briefcase full of watches and certain clients can't travel to us, so we'll get on a plane and we'll do a showing uh, at their home or at their office uh, where we show them all the watches that they want. They'll pick their watch and, you know, um, and then you know, we'll do the transaction after that. Um, not everybody can get to one of our locations, which is actually why we're trying to get you know, that West Coast location started um, so we can service that part of the country. Um, as far as servicing, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a watch that was purchased from us, but if one of our clients calls us and they had a broken watch that you know needs repair, we'll be happy to help them out. We take it into our service center. You know, if clients need a certain watch that's unattainable or you know can't be found anywhere, we you know we do our best to to scrape the world and you know we find it somewhere. You know, it, it's we have contacts in all part of the world. Um, you know, we 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 do a lot of buying and selling in Hong Kong, in Singapore, uh, in Europe, Italy, Dubai. You know, so we're all over the place. Uh, and for us, uh, I think probably maybe 30% of our business is international. And you know, even though there's a lot of options, you know, we've we've managed to you know become very close to our clients, both domestic and international. Uh, and they know no matter what happens, if they need to sell their watch, we'll be the ones to buy them. If they want to consign the watch, we'll be the ones to consign them. You know, a lot of clients need capital sometimes, and they'll call us up and they'll say, "Listen, uh, is there anything you can do for me? I need to get out of this watch. No problem, by all means. You know, that's what we're here for." Uh, so you know, we we offer a lot of things that we think a lot of companies can't, especially a lot of these authorized dealers. These authorized dealers won't be able to do this. But you know, we we try to do very, everything should be white glove for us. You know, you come into our store; it's a white glove experience. You know, we have private lounges when somebody wants a little bit of privacy. You know, we try to keep everything as white glove as possible for our clients. What what I think is so interesting is how the industry is shifting away from being merely a commodity seller, which for many years, you know the the buying and purchasing of luxury watches felt very much like to more of an experience or a club. You know, the watch is a manifestation of the lifestyle that we talked about earlier in, in its various forms. And that lifestyle needs to be more than just wearing the object. It needs to be about how convenient things are for you, if you're taken care of well, if you're treated nicely, the ability to move in and out of product and have that variety is great. It reminds me about when there was a company called um, Eleven James that was a rental company, and yeah, I remember I think, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, and 
I love the concept. I think that it made sense in a lot of ways. I think some of the business model was flawed because rental wasn't really the way to go. But what they understood is that people wanted to be part of a community where they learned about watches and they got to sample them on their own wrist. And that not necessarily owning it for a long time was the goal, but having it for a while and then moving on to something else. And this is such a big part of the modern experience that I think is only now being spoken about. And that is, you're a collector not just to own the Grail watch, but it's not about the Grail watch. It's there's all these cool experiences you want to sample, own it for a little while, move on, and if something really appeals to you, you can go back to it at some point. But course, it's that shifting between thing. And no one, and this is why I think it's so interesting from sort of a business model perspective, has quite figured out exactly how to do it, right? Like it's pro- yeah. the rental thing, too much liability, owning it, not everyone can have a relationship with a wrist aficionado where they can move watches back and forth, but there's something there, right? And we're still playing with it, but I think it's such a rich area to explore, right? Yeah, listen, I, I think their model is amazing, and I think the the insurance liability, uh, if there was a way to get around it, which I don't know, think it, I don't think there is because of the cost of of these items, and you know, they, they would be too easy to manipulate. So I think insurance companies just wouldn't take it on anymore. But the, the model was amazing because people wanted immediate gratification and they wanted variety. And they satisfied both of those needs for the end consumer. You know, but So if it's something that you can replicate in that same model, I think it's amazing. I really think it's amazing. So let's talk about the stores for a second because I'm thinking about how to take what we just spoke about and translate it into in-person experience. Do you have evenings where you bring people in and you say, okay, we got 20 of the most hip, popular watches right now. Um, I guess you could buy them, but the real reason they're here is for you just to try them on so that you yep. know what it feels like to wear you know, the, the hippest watch around right now. Do you, do you do things like that? Should you do things like that? We do. I mean, we're, listen, we're open to the public, right? So uh, obviously appointments are, are, are nice uh, if somebody can make them ahead of time, but people can just walk right into our stores. Um, and you know, we, have the, we run the full gamut of watches. At any given store, I probably, in New York, I probably have four to 500 different watches in stock at any given time. In my Miami store, I maybe have two to three hundred. And in LA, when we open up in Beverly Hills, it'll probably be the same. Probably about two to three hundred different watches. So, you know, when people need that immediate gratification or they want a gift for their wife, or they need that Rolex that they want to try on, but they don't know if they're going to be a 36 millimeter or a 40 millimeter, or maybe an old 41 millimeter. This is what really what our purpose, uh, the store is the purpose they're going to serve. It's going to be that you can't walk into a regular authorized dealer and try these models on. You think you want that watch. Uh, but you need to be sure. And the only way to really be sure is to come into a boutique and try everything on. You know, some people may want a Rolex, but then they find an AP and a 41 that fits them a bit better, looks a little younger, but they can't just walk into an AP and try these pieces on anymore. You know, you walk into most Audemars Piguet's and uh, they don't have any watches on display at all. The you know, same thing with Patek, uh, Rolex, those, you know, it, it, the, the list goes on and on. You know, you can't walk into an RM and try any piece on. You know, so there's no real way for somebody to say, okay, how am I going to spend $300,000 today without trying on the watch? You know, and I think that's really the, the, uh, the box of what, what makes us special is that anybody can come into one of our boutiques, try on the watch that they were looking for, something very similar, um, and then make that educated purchase after touching and feeling it. Okay, so Wrist Aficionado has the store in New York, the store in Miami, and soon the yep. store in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. Yep. What is the strategy in those cities to tell people around town, hey, there's this retail space. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I've been to all these cities. And one of the things I found which is interesting is even though there are these amazing watch retail environments, if you're not already a watch lover and you're not sort of 
looking for it, it might be difficult to know about these stores just by going around town. Like, do you think that there's, you know, uh, in-person advertising or marketing opportunities that would work for a retail space like Ristificionado? I think so. I mean, so for us, we use word of mouth as our main source of new clientele. And I think we've done a pretty good job at doing this because our clients are very valued to us. Um, and as well as we take care of our clients, I think they've been great as reciprocating and with referrals and whatnot. Um, and then our, our main marketing avenue is just through social media. You know, we don't, we don't really do much marketing other than that. Um, and I, I, th- I think it's been enough. You know, could there be uh, more marketing channels that we're not using? I'm sure there are. Uh, but for, for us, you know, Instagram and word of mouth has been our you know, claim to fame. You know, this is where we built our business. Uh, and we're very grateful for our customers for putting our name out there and you know spreading our good name. But <clears throat> between social media and you know maybe a little bit of internet marketing as well, I, I don't really know any other channels uh, for us to advertise. I, I think it's interesting because you're right. I mean, that is where most people learn things these days. You know what we say in digital marketing is it's digital first, you know, in person second, where it may have been the other way around. And yep. but I also go back to the experience that I had and many people had where they originally learned about watches by accident, seeing billboards, seeing you know retail stores, seeing advertisements in person. Uh, if you grew up in Hong Kong, for example, you were just inundated with watch brand messaging and advertising all, yep. all the time. You didn't need to look for it. And so I thought that there was always a better opportunity in cities like Los Angeles and New York, Miami, where there are plenty of people that could get into watches, may not be keyed into it, and could be signaled in the real world just as many people were in other places where it just worked out so well. Um, I just love thinking about how in this sort of digital economy – how we can, you know, have a hybrid model with the, with the with the real, you know, the in person places because that part of the experience is so crucial. But I think the consumer is only start slowly starting to realize that. Right? Like, what comes with you as risk aficionado owning the inventory, having these retail spaces, maintaining a robust team with a lot of services, like. It's all kind of abstract until you've worked with a company that doesn't have it, and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that again. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so that buying experience is very important for us, and you know, it should be from the moment somebody calls our store to the moment they receive their package, to the follow up, to the after sales, uh, to the service if they need it, to the extra straps if they need it, to the follow up for you know for their next watch purchase, to the trade in. That has to be all white glove for us, you know. And there's got to be uh, we take pride in. You know that follow up with our clientele and staying on top of them and making sure that every step of the way they are satisfied. And I think that's really what's going to differentiate us in the long term um, than other with other brands. You know, I think the client experience always has to be number one. And I think if you make the client experience number one, it you know the product will follow. Uh, but as long as they're obsessed with the client experience, um, you know they they'll be able to the, the the product itself is is almost secondary. I couldn't agree with you more, and I definitely feel that it's important to state again that that client experience is what differentiates why people want to do business with one retailer or brand versus another. But I'm curious as to where your education and client experience came from. Of course, to apply it, you need to know it. Talk about your background and where you learned about uh, the customer experience. As far as our background, so my my partner. Um, had the majority of the watch experience. You know, he worked with uh, Jacob for about I think it was fifteen or twenty years <clears throat> before we started our project. I came out of I was a dentist before I got into watches. I practiced dentistry for about fifteen years. I was always a, a watch collector, uh, but it was always a hobby for me. Um, and then slowly, 
you know, me and Vadim were best friends growing up. So, you know, we had this idea of maybe getting a couple of watches together and maybe trying to, you know, flip them to see if we, there was any profit to be made. And, you know, the first couple of deals we did, we lost on. Um, and that, that's basically how it grew. You know, we brought uh, a couple of uh, packages together, maybe about three or four, uh, three or four APs, you know, flipped it for a couple hundred bucks. We thought, oh, that was great. Uh, we went to the next package, maybe flip that for a couple hundred bucks and, and so on and so forth until we had, you know, that flipping experience turned into a small little inventory where we had maybe 20 watches in stock. And then we could start advertising them on social media. But, you know, for me, just the, the talking and the rapport uh, just basically came from talking to patients all day. It's, it's, it's a weird start for me because you know, it's really outside. Not weird the, at all. It's to- yeah. look, that, that, look it, you think of it as patient experience, but dentistry yeah. is highly competitive. Uh, pe- the reason people come back is because they feel positive. You make them feel comfortable when there's sharp instruments in their mouth. I have to get Novocaine in a couple of weeks, and I'm of only course. thinking about the experience, right? You need to have you know good bedside manners, they call it, and sometimes you need to sell expensive services to someone with a yeah, straight face. Uh, you know, it, it seems highly relevant. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, listen, there, there's a lot of parallels between the two. Uh, but for me, you know, patient experience was always number one, and client experience transforms into that being always number one. I think if you make your patient happy, uh, which I've you know done my best to do so over the years that I practiced, you can almost do no wrong. And if you make your client happy and, you know, you, do, you go out of your way to service them and, you know, take care of their needs, it, no matter what happens, if there's hiccups along the way, it happens. It's, it's, it's the nature of our beast, uh, of our business. But as long as you give 100% effort and you make their client experience a priority, I think they do appreciate that and they stay long-term clients. Um, and that's where the loyalty comes in in our business because obviously there's, there's many competitors out there. There's a lot of people online. We can go and search for watches. Uh, so there's got to be something that distinguishes you from the rest. You know, you, there's got to be that kind of purple cow effect where you're going to be different than everyone else out there. I'm actually still stuck on the dentist thing. I'm imagining how a lot of the instruments look a lot like watchmakers' instruments. Very much so. Yeah, very like, much so. Very much so. I mean, they're not the yeah. same, but you know, like at a glance, you're like, are those watchmakers' tools? Yeah. Oh no, that's for cleaning teeth. That's yeah, so funny. I actually still use my dental loops uh, a lot of times when I'm changing screws and whatnot. If I'm changing straps, I still use my dental loops. Well, so it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We know that the sort of um, pathway to becoming a watch lover is varied, and people enter it through different things. But what I find is consistent in everyone I've ever met who's a watch collector is they had to have some type of foundational appreciation. And one of the things that watches are known for, whether it's their history, whether it's their design, whether it's their mechanics, whether it's their precision, you know, and being in micro-mechanical engineering and tolerances and, and, and small surfacing. But, you know, you had that background of, of, de- of the dental world, which, whether or not you knew it, allowed you to appreciate watches all the better. Or someone might be successful in business or be a great engineer. And all those in- experiences allow you to appreciate watches in a way that you probably weren't able to before. And that's, again, just wa- one of the reasons I personally love the hobby is it attracts all these professionals with an eye for detail. And while you have, may have no idea about their world, you can appreciate watches the exact same way as them. And it's interesting, right, to sort of see all the different personalities you can run into. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, and that, that was the beauty, that was the allure of the watch business is that when you concentrate on a certain niche and a certain subset of the population, you get to meet like-minded people that have common interests uh, and common goals and common hobbies and uh, common, common business experiences. So that was the allure for me. Uh, where as in dentistry, you know, I was confined in this you know, eight by eight space all day long. In the watch world, you, you meet tons of different fascinating people in tons of different industries. 
um, and just you know just picking their their brain all day and you know finding out what makes them tick and what business opportunities there are out there. It, it's an amazing field. It really is an amazing field. Let's talk about the inventory acquisition side of things. You yep. obviously have to sell watches, but before you sell, you have to acquire. And there's different ways of acquiring watches, but you have you know, a degree of, of uh, you can be a discriminating customer. You don't have to take all the watches that are offered to you. How do you make decisions about what to get? Obviously, you want things that you can resell, but to a degree, you have to take a risk on the future. Talk a little bit about the psychology as a store of acquiring inventory. Uh, so for us, it's it's twofold. Uh, a good chunk of our inventory is from our recurring clients, whether they trade in a watch or they sell a watch or they consign a watch. That's a big chunk of our inventory. And then there's uh, you know a whole market out there uh, for secondary watch sellers. You know where we go to shows, we go to events, we go to trade shows, and there's an open market with dealers um, all over the world uh, where we acquire inventory because uh, we always need to restock. It's it's a daily event for us. What do you look for in a watch? Obviously. It's easy if a watch is already popular, that's in demand, I want one of those because I think I can sell it. But to a degree, you always need to speculate a little bit. And Indeed. you have to be a prediction engine. What, what are some things that you look for when trying to make these predictions? So, so, so for us, we look for mainstream popularity, I look for scarcity, and I look for value. You know, when I talk about scarcity, I, uh, certain things like uh, you know, Tiffany stamped paddocks. You know, for us, you know, right. I, I would buy those all day because there's only a finite of those made. Limited edition APs, you know anything that's uh, numbered, you know, hundred, two hundred pieces. Anything with jewels and baguettes, uh, that's always a big one for us. Uh, RM, anything limited in RM has always been great for us um, because there's always a there's always a market for it. If they're only making thirty pieces out there, we're servicing eight billion people in the world. Someone's going to want that watch at some point, you know. So that's I think what 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 we target when we when we do our purchasing and we only work with probably five or six brands so for us it's pretty it's pretty restricted you know we don't we don't try to be a jack of all trades we try to concentrate uh, on the brands that we know um, and, and you know we can't really get into every every brand it would be too much for us uh, so we try to stay pretty restricted with what we do it appears to me that you're an ideal you know, I'll call it I'll call it hobby partner for people that want to be prolific, but still at the same time somewhat casual watch collector. This is an individual that likes watches, wants to wear a variety of watches, has the money to do so, but doesn't really have the time or bandwidth to constantly hunt to see what's cool and what's new. You can be sort of like a regular, you know, person they reach out to, and you can tell them like. Here's some cool things that are in. I know your taste. Like, am I am I sort of misunderstanding it, or do you actually develop that level of intimacy where you know what a customer likes? You can just get on a phone with them and and you know give them a satisfying couple of hours a month of watch hobby time, uh, which allows them to enjoy it, but also live the rest of their lives. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Uh, so for us, you know, we're very keen on on the, the variety of the client that we bring in. Also, I think there there's so many different aspects. Uh, of of the, the watch collector and the connoisseur out there, you know. So we really try not to target just uh, one client in particular. You know, we try to keep it as broad as possible for for our particular base. In terms of the clients themselves, talk about some of the things that they ask about. What are some of the concerns they have? What do they get excited about? What do they understand or not understand? I think it's always interesting for other consumers to know what people like them are asking about and what they're interested in. Maybe their own interests are different or the same as everyone else. But you know, talk about some of the commonalities you see between the many, many conversations you have with your clients. 
So, I mean, it, it's a broad spectrum again. So you have the collectors that have their own unique tastes. And, you know, some people just like F.P. Jordan, some people just like Paddock, some people only like RMs. Um, so you have the collectors. Then you have those that love mainstream new watches that come out. You know, when Rolex drops a new release, everybody wants it, you know. So there's a certain subsect of the population that will go after every new release that comes out. Paddock comes out with a new model watch. A certain subsect of the population will go after every single Paddock that comes out. You know, so it's pretty broad. You know, we like to appeal to everybody. So it's not just one subsect of the population. So if it's uh, that collector that wants all new Rolexes, we know that they're going to be waiting for that watch. Uh, we'll gladly have that ready for them as well. If it's that collector that wants uh, the limited edition RM, you know, we'll go out and hunt for that as well. Uh, it's it's so broad. It's so broad. Um, how, so there's really, did, there's, yeah, there's not, not one thing you can actually do to, uh, to pinpoint it. No, I'm just interested in what's going on in their minds. And uh, again, I'm so deep in the hobby. I don't speak to people that are necessarily like just getting into it. And one of the things I've always wondered is what the name of the hobby or the type of hobby even is, especially like in sort of colloquial terms, like cars. There's yep. car collector, but a lot of people say like I'm a car guy, you yep. know, like I'm an engine, you know, like I'm I'm an engine nut or something like that. I'm a gearhead, whatever. But with watches, is it like, am I, is it watch guy? Is it watch collector? Like these seem like awkward terms, and I'm waiting for like no, I think hipper it is. terms I think, to I come think, in. I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, I think there are the watch collectors out there. You have the watch enthusiasts, um, and then you have that subsect of the population that are just new to watches. There are hobbyists out there. You have the guys out there that you know just you know new job. Uh, new money. You had a, you know, we had a whole wave of this crypto uh, fad. You know, when people were making tons of money on crypto, and that was a whole subsect of our our buyers market. You know, at at one point, that was probably five to ten percent of our buyers were just crypto buyers. You know, when that, that was huge. Were they paying in cryptocurrency? They were paying. No, I mean, so, some would pay in uh, crypto. We use a company called BitPay, but so a lot of the a lot of our processes, a lot of our payments were coming through BitPay, uh, which is kind of a third party uh, to process uh, crypto transactions. Well, I, how the, did you know they were crypto people? And I'm just curious. Oh, uh, we, we went as far as uh, to do crypto events every year. So oh, interesting. Did, yeah, so the crypto conference, there's a big crypto conference in Miami every year, and we go as far as to do that event every year where we get a big booth and we do that event. Was there a different type of watch that that type of customer wanted? Was it the same taste? They just had money coming from a different place? Um, no, not a different type. They, I mean, mainstream watches, but you know, they went very extravagant because there was so much money created in the crypto space. You know, oh, okay, so a, very flamboyant. Very. Yeah, I mean, very extravagant. You know, they wanted the big watches, the, the big paddocks, the big RMs. RMs, you know, had a huge push uh, when crypto was big. You know, when crypto hit 60,000, you know, it, watches were selling at 3 or 4x. Um, you know, it was probably, you can get a $200,000 RM that was selling for 600,000 at some point. You know, so it was a huge, huge push to our market. Um, well, I mean, what, the watch is a trophy, and I, I've written articles about this, specifically on this, where I said that one of the functions that watches serve as, especially for men in contemporary culture, is a trophy of sorts. And maybe you're just giving yourself a trophy, but it tells you something about your own accomplishment. It is, and, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, listen, there's plenty of people that we have that will only buy watches after they complete a certain deal or they get a paycheck or they'll get a once a year on their bonus or you know they reach a certain milestone or every birthday they get themselves you know so everybody's trophy is different you know whether it's a birthday or a work milestone or a payday of some sort everybody's milestone is different uh, but these trophies you know it's a very relevant term that you're using because it is a trophy it's but it's a personal trophy of some sort yeah absolutely and you know in order to 
earn a trophy, you also have to have a reason to celebrate. And so we find that these are prerequisites. You have to have a reason to celebrate, so something happening in your life, and then you want to recognize that celebration, and a lot of people choose a watch. And maybe not every celebration merits a watch, but an awful lot do. And that's like a crucial part of it. And so this idea of being able to have a lot of watches or, or ostensibly to shift them, I think is, is so deeply ingrained in it. And it's so great to hear that companies like Risti Aficionado are there, not just to sell you one watch if you want, but to sort of be your partner along the, the, the journey um, is, is an emerging trend. And it sounds like you're so heavily invested in it. Uh, I think that's great. We are, we are. You know, so for, for us, you know, we, we realized that, you know, through the years that you start off, a lot of our clients start off as clients, but I can't tell you the amount of friendships that we built with our clients throughout the years that you become really close uh, with these clients. And you, you know, and, and it just goes beyond. You go to dinners with these guys and you go on vacation sometimes and you meet them. Uh, if you travel overseas, you'll meet these guys and you'll go to dinners. It's, it's really an amazing bond that you actually build with your, your watch dealer. You know, I think it's something that you don't get to build uh, with your AD of sorts uh, because it's very uh, one-dimensional. You know, I, I think when you're dealing with uh, a brand such as myself, you know, we really... Uh, we try to be multifaceted and we try to get involved in, you know, it's your wife's birthday coming up. Let's get her a gift. You know, your kids, your kids graduation, maybe we should get them something, you know, so we try to be involved in all aspects of their life. So I think it becomes very personal at some point. And I think that's the best part of our business is that we get to grow with our clients and, you know, we're, we're so, we're so in tune with our lives. It becomes amazing. If you had the opportunity to become an authorized dealer of one of the brands you carry or a different one in the future, is that something that you and the team might explore, or is that just a completely different direction that you want to go in? I think we would. I think we definitely would. And I think that that may be the, the ultimate long-term goal. I think once we have enough stores in place, that's probably something uh, we'll pursue. Okay. Um, right, right now, you know, it's nice to um, have multi-brands uh, where I think if we became an authorized dealer of a brand, we may be limited on uh, what else we can sell. Um, and I don't know if we'd be able to... to supply our clients uh, with everything we do right now. So it may limit us short term, but long term, I think that's probably going to be the end goal. I think long term, that'll probably be the end goal. You know, have enough, have enough retail locations in great spaces where uh, you will be an authorized dealer. And I think there's a huge value in that of not just being a store or a brand, but having this retail footprint, especially across multiple cities where you have all this wonderful penetration. It's it's very, very powerful. And I agree that there is future value in, in just that. But let's talk a little bit, and, and we'll close that with this, sort of some of the near-term goals. We have the store in Los Angeles opening up soon. Maybe you have others planned. Uh, talk at least from a consumer what to expect from Risti Aficionado and, and how they can best engage with you in the next you know, months or years. Um, you know, so for us, uh, the priority right now is opening. We just, uh, the priority right now is going to be opening up LA. Uh, Beverly Hills is going to open up probably end of February, maybe beginning of March. We're going to open up in the Waldorf. Um, so that's going to be a huge, uh, huge step for us. We're very excited about this one. We have a little, uh, we have a little micro boutique that we just opened up uh, in the Satai also that just specializes in women's products. We do a high-end, uh, high-end handbags and jewelry and uh, watches just for women. Uh, so we made that boutique exclusively for them. Um, that one's called Maison by Rist Aficionado. Uh, so that's also in the Satai, and we'll probably expand on that brand as well. But for right now, I think the goal would be to open up one or two stores a year. Uh, we've really worked hard in the last six months to get our back end in order to where we can provide enough support to all these stores. And I think we're at the point where we can do so now. 
you know, we, we, we have a big online presence and, you know, we meet a lot of new clients on a daily. So it takes a lot on the back end to service all of these clients. But the main thing for us is just not to compromise customer care and customer support. You know, we always want to make clients number one. The client experience has to be perfect every time they come into our store. And we, we really pride ourselves on that. But I think long term, we'll probably be one to two stores a year, uh, hopefully. Um, in the meantime, once we open up LA, we'll, uh, uh, that gets going, we'll probably start looking for maybe another store somewhere on the West Coast, uh, or maybe we'll do uh, maybe one more down south. So we still haven't found our exact location yet, but there'll definitely be more stores in the future. Thank you. This has been a conversation with Eddie from Wrist Aficionado. The website is wristaficionado.com. Eddie, what other places would you like to direct people's attention, maybe social media? Where else can people go to learn more about you or contact Wrist Aficionado? Yeah, uh, Instagram uh, is our main source. Um, you know, you can find us uh, Wrist Aficionado on Instagram. Our website, wristaficionado.com. Any leads or uh, phone calls can go through there as well. There's a direct chat option, so if somebody wants to chat with us through the website, they can do so. Um, they can always email us, sales at wristaficionado.com, uh, with any inquiries. And that's it. Otherwise, we'd love to see people come into our stores. That's why we're here. Uh, myself and my partner, Vadim, are in our New York store the majority of the, loca- uh, the, majority of the time. We have a partner in Miami, uh, William, who's going to be in our Miami location at all times. So I think if anybody wants to come in and say hi to him as well, by all means, you know, he's there a good chunk of the time. But you know, we're always here for our customers. We love to meet new people. We love to meet our clients. So the more our clients can come into the boutiques and say hello to us, the better. Eddie, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>